Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Canada's new long-term care standards are getting panned. The Bulldogs are taking their talons to Brantford. We're still waiting for Mike Schreiner's big decision. Will a recession impact anti-racism efforts at work? Black History Month begins with a bang in Hamilton. And learn why women's heart and brain health are being left behind. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have some of the highest standards, uh, not only in Canada, but in North America, to say, we'll take a look at what the federal government has come up with, but I have no interest in watering down Ontario's very high standards. I'm hopeful that the federal uh, standards will meet the high standards that Ontario has set. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of Ontario Long-Term Care Minister Paul Calandra as the Health Standards Organization released updated national standards for long-term care facilities. Now, this panel of experts... Um, says that residents should get at least four hours of direct care every day, and those who work in long-term care homes must be paid more. I think we realize that those two things have to be happening. One of the big issues, however, is that these standards are voluntary. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is an associate teaching professor at Ontario Tech University, a long-term care advocate and co-founder of Canadians for LTC. Dr. Stamatopoulos, good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I want to start with the voluntary component. Oh, and the, when, I, when I heard that word, I, I thought, yeah. why even bother announcing exactly. these? New, no one's going to follow them. Nobody. Nobody. Literally, I, I, I laughed. I laughed. And it's, you sit here and you just say to yourself, like, what's it going to take? With everything that we lived through the last four years, you know, particularly during COVID and, and with, you know, long-term care being hit the hardest, with no question about it. And we're sitting here years later talking about voluntary standards which they know full well are not going to be taken into account so you know this was nothing more than a pr stunt and i'm I'm massively disappointed you know in the prime minister but then when you you know you just played paul calandra (laughs) in the uh you know lead up to this interview and he's sitting here having the audacity to say has no interest in quote-unquote watering down what the province is already doing to improve care, which in my opinion is nothing. And I think it's hilarious that he's even trying to suggest that they have in any way appreciably improved long-term care during their tenure, particularly his tenure. Uh, So I don't know what he's talking about, but it is very clear that this, as it stands right now, is going nowhere. Until you federally legislate this and you provide the money And the oversight and the teeth in order to see through said legislation, nothing's going to change. This is really a disservice to older Canadians who, at the start of the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, have been put on the back burner. 81% of the COVID-19 deaths in this country by May of 2020, like two months into the pandemic, were were dead because of COVID. By far and away the most of any country. We have to protect our older Canadians. And, and listen, and I try to warn people about this going forward. Like, this is going to be your future. And everybody says, oh, I'm not going to end up in long-term care. And what I hear the most from people is, you know, and sadly now I hear I'm going to use MAID before I go into long-term care or, you know, over my dead body. And I hear this a lot from people. Nobody ever wants to go to long-term care. And you talk to any family, you know, including my own, who had to live this nightmare of a system. And, and you never thought you would have to use it. But it gets to the point at the very end of your, you know, your, your, your better years, so they claim, your golden years, when you need that assistance, and our home care system right now is laughable and cannot provide the kind of care that people with, you know, serious comorbidities require to age at home properly, 
without being independently wealthy and hiring private care around the clock, like those wealthy people do who avoid long-term care, by the way, they're going to need long-term care, whether they like it or not. So you should be thinking forward and you should have the vested interest now to fight these politicians and demand for better because this is going to be your future. Make no mistake. Like, I'm not only fighting for people right now, but I'm also fighting for my own future because I'm not rich and I can't afford the private care that you need to age at home gracefully. So I'm also fighting for myself and everyone my age. Everybody should be thinking about this. But unfortunately, we have a tendency, you know, to short termism and only thinking in the immediate future until it's too late. We got a couple more minutes with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, associate teaching professor at Ontario Tech University, longtime advocate of long-term care and the co-founder of Canadians for LTC. Calandra mentioned that Ontario still has the highest standards in oh, Canada. I'm glad you said that. I want to point that out. I was well, I'm, I'm going to ask what is the reality? It's hogwash. The reality is the last statistics we have from 2021 in Ontario was that our long-term care residents are only receiving 2.75 hours of direct care per resident per day. Yet he is promising us four hours by 2025. We don't have it now. We're nowhere near it. He's saying by 2025, these standards, these federal voluntary suggestions are saying we need it right now. And frankly, when you talk to the experts, as I have, that were actually on this committee, they tell you we actually need five to seven hours because that four-hour benchmark was created over a decade ago and it's completely outdated. So it's ludicrous that we're even begging for four hours by 2025 when we're really close to three. And we've seen no appreciable increase in that. Certainly over the last year, I haven't seen any. Would someone love to ask Paul Calandra what the actual daily record is right now? Because I don't even think he knows. Another part of the standards is we have to pay PSWs more. We have to pay staff more in long-term care homes. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, what this boils down to, and I literally just tweeted about this, this, re- this entire response to long-term care reflects layers of systemic discrimination, right? You name it. We got ageism, ableism, sexism, racism. Keep in mind, the majority of long-term care residents are older women who have disabilities, right? And they're often lower income. This is why they're in long-term care. And the majority of women, women who care for this workforce, who care for these residents, the workforce, are racialized women, many of which are due to Canada, that are being ongoing exploited by often these for-profit providers who need to pay them less in order to increase their profits. And that's how it goes. Which is another thing that was left out of this discussion is, why are we not talking about ending for-profit care? We all saw what happened. It fails. Why are we still allowing this model to continue? Failed miserably. Dr. Stamatopoulos, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Canadians for LTC, long-term care advocate and an associate teaching professor at Ontario Tech University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton Bulldogs are getting ready to pull up stakes and move down the 403 to Brantford, at least for the next little while. It's all due to lengthy renovations that are being planned at First Ontario Centre that is forcing all the local sports teams that use that downtown arena to play elsewhere. Michael Antlauer is the owner of the two-time OHL champion Hamilton Bulldogs and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, good morning. How are you? And a one-time American Hockey League. <laughs> yes, we should, not, great, <laughs> we should not forget that at all. Yes, a three-time no. champion on the on the ice surface. I, I want to get your thoughts on, I know this still needs to be approved by Brantford City Council. It sounds like it's a fait accompli, but why Brantford? Uh, all for the right reasons, uh, Rick. I mean, I think when you, when you consider... Um, you know what's important uh, in in uh, in for the Hamlin Bulldogs. It's uh, 
it's the well-being of our players um, and uh, and our fans. Um, and uh, when you th- when you consider that that Brantford is is you know literally twenty minute drive from uh, Ancaster High, where our, 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 some of our players go to school and or you know or build it, and um, uh, then you know our fans, some a lot of our fans are are actually live up on the mountain, uh, um, so it creates a, a bit of a win win situation, and then. They do have a facility there. I mean, we go from, as I, I think I said earlier on, uh, one of the riders, uh, we go from the largest rink in the OHL to the smallest. It'll be intimate and it'll be uh, it'll be a great place to uh, to watch hockey uh, in Brantford. I, I do want to get to the, the renovation factor that needs to be done to make the Civic Center in Brantford OHL ready, so to speak. But before we get there, what other arenas, what other cities did you consider moving the team to? Uh, I actually, you know, when, when the announcements came in November, Rick, it was, uh, I was, I was, um, not shocked, but I was, I was impressed by the amount of attention I got. Uh, and a lot of municipalities reached out. Some of them didn't have the ability to accommodate, but were willing to accommodate us all throughout, uh, you know, uh, Ontario as far back, as far east as Cornwall. Mayor there reached out to, uh, to me, uh, you know, uh, Brampton, uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of attention in, in wanting to have OHL hockey in, in their municipalities. And, um, and, uh, you know, Brantford literally, uh, within probably 72 hours of the announcement, uh, was in touch. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been a process. It's been, uh, uh, but you know, all along, I think you know, Brantford made sense, and the fact of the matter is that um, they've experienced OHL hockey. Mind you, it was forty years ago, and the community has changed in forty years. And and um, the desire, uh, I think, was was the thing that really you know uh, that uh, to to want uh, to to want to do this, and um, um, that. That, you know, it kind of feels it feels good to be wanted. Absolutely. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Michael Ann Lauer, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. They are moving to Brantford, or at least that's the plan. Still has to be rubber stamped by Brantford City Council. What needs to be done at the arena? What does that price tag look like, and who's paying for what? Yeah, so I'll let the city of Brantford answer that question because I don't know what what is public or not and out of respect for the city of Brantford I'm, I'm happy to have them answer that question and um, but it's it's in the millions uh, this is not a, a, a you know this is circa 1967 if I'm not mistaken I know that because a, a friend of mine Coley Campbell uh, played his exhibition uh, with the Pittsburgh Penguins there uh, in 1967, he told me so. Wow. Uh, so you know, the, 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 the there's a bit of you know, it's uh, the the city changes uh, replace all the seats some years not too not too long ago. Uh, it has great sight lines. Uh, it's only three thousand seats, um, but it's your typical junior B rink. Uh, it, uh, the good news is it's it's you know it's taller than the Dave Andrewchuk Arena, <laughs> and uh, so we have to look at the the, the players and the safety of our players. Uh, so uh, there's some you know some some arena uh, retrofitting that needs to be done um, with boards and glass uh, benches. 
uh, need to be uh, lengthened because they're small benches. We, we can't have all the players. Uh, uh, there's and then from the fan standpoint, uh, concession areas are, are small. Uh, change the concession areas. Make it make it uh, the, the you know the, the scoreboard. Put a put a new video scoreboard uh, in place. Uh, make it right for the fans. Make it right for the players. And make it an intimate fun place to watch uh you know winning hockey uh, which the bulldogs have been able to provide for many years this is going to be a three-year excursion to branford will the team be the branford bulldogs or retain the hamilton name you know what <laughs> and i don't want to sound uh i i should probably choose my word because i just don't i don't want to this sound um, wrong, but there's no doubt when you when you're accepted the way the city of Brantford has accepted us, you know it, it would be wrong not to be called the Brantford Bulldogs. Is there any impact on the brands long term? Is there any impact to the brand? In which way? In terms of fans' allegiance, how people view the Bulldogs franchise, is there any impact, positive or negative? I, I mean, I think we've always brought rec- you know a positive impact. Uh, both on the ice and off the ice, whether, whether, whether it be the Bulldog Foundation or our players being, uh, you know, uh, you know, being role models in, in, uh, you know, in all the years, knock on wood, I haven't had any incidents with, with our players and we care for our players. Or, uh, we, we look for character and we, so I think we've created a positive environment for, for, from a brand standpoint. I don't see why it would change in any way uh, being in Brantford. I mean, like I said, to me, the least disruptive for our players was to be in Brantford because in many cases, a lot of our players can continue to be with their same billet parents uh, in Hamilton and up in the mountain in Ancaster and and they can be, uh, you know, um, so I don't see anything change. I mean, and, and from a Hamiltonian, I mean, it's, you know, we have fans from, from Brantford coming to the Bulldogs games. We have fans from Burlington. Uh, we have fans from, you know, Stony Creek, uh, different parts in Paris, uh, Ontario, that, that come to, to Bulldog games in Hamilton. Uh, it's a change of venue. I, I think it's probably least disruptive for the fans as well. Uh, I know when, when we moved from Belleville, I saw some Belleville, you know, Belleville Bulls jerseys uh, mm-hmm. at our games. Uh, that's disruptive, <laughs> you know. Uh, but any event, so that's uh, so. I think it's very. It, it is positive for the brand. I, at least I hope that, you know it's perceived that way. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't my choice, uh, as you know. Um, and it's uh, and I've had to, you know, basically, you know, create an environment which was best. You know, I thought that was the least disruptive for for all. All involved. We've got a couple more minutes with uh, Michael Landlauer, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is there any news on your potential bid to buy the Senators? I have no comment on that. Okay. Or could you potentially right. be looking forward to working with Ryan Reynolds at all? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Okay. I, I think, uh, yeah. My my heart my 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 mindset is on, is on the Bulldogs this morning, and I appreciate that. I don't want to <laughs> get you that. in trouble, Michael. That's the last thing I want to do. Appreciate your time. Uh, hey, best of luck with this. This sounds like a, a, a something that's going to work for the fans, the players, the coaches, the franchise going forward. Really exciting to see uh, the puck drop in Brantford and uh, continue to cheer on our Bulldogs. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Mike Lainlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. My ambition is driven by the issues I care about. 
And I want to hear from people about the best way to advance those issues, and I want to take the time to do it in a really meaningful way. That is the voice of Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner appearing on The Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML as we welcome you back to Good Morning Hamilton. Rick Samprin waking you up on a hump day as Mr. Schreiner continues to contemplate crossing the floor of the provincial legislature and running for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Headline in the Toronto Sun. Ontario Liberal leaders look foolish with pitch for Greens Shriner. Brian Lilly is the person who wrote that, a columnist in the Toronto Sun, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Brian, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's uh, an interesting week in Ontario politics. Very much so. Let's get into this one. Why do you think the Liberals are looking more like court jesters than future legislators? Well, because you've got this group of elder statesmen and stateswomen for the Liberal Party who looked around at the four existing candidates, two of whom are sitting MPPs, two of whom are sitting MPs in Ottawa, one of whom, former party president, cabinet minister with senior portfolio, and they looked around at all of them and said, you know what we really need? Someone from another party to lead us. It doesn't make them the the party look good it sends a signal to to people watching that you know senior members of the liberals don't think these guys have what it takes and and, and that the solution is to say you know our bank bench strength is so weak that we need to go outside of the party mike schreiner is a really nice guy he's a very smart guy um he's very effective at what he does but he's the leader of a party of one and he, his party is not the Liberal Party. Mike Schreiner is not a Liberal. And while they align on some issues, they don't align on all. And this is just a very strange move by people like Greg Sorbera and, uh, and Lynn McLeod, the former party leader, and Deb Matthews and Liz Sandals, people who held the reins of power for many years in the Liberal Party. For them to do this is pretty shocking and it's angered a lot of people inside the Liberal Party. We had uh, Dr. Kate Graham, one of the uh, Liberal supporters, who signed this letter asking for Schreiner to consider this, and I, I told her yesterday that this, you know, I guess this is a case of desperate times call for desperate measures, but what would be worse is if Schreiner says no thanks, because then the Liberals look like, oh my gosh, what do we, what do, we do now? Well, so he said no twice before they released the letter publicly because he was asked about this issue in December and then he uh, he said no then. And, and then my colleagues and uh, competitors over at the Toronto Star got wind of this last week and they asked him about the letter before it was released and he said no. So before the letter came out, they had said no twice. They still went forward and asked and... You know, Schreiner initially was no a day of pressure, and he said, you know what, it's a serious issue, I'll think about it. He's now, so initially all the problems were inside the Liberal Party. You wouldn't believe what I've heard from some longtime Liberals, people who have, some of them I've, I've quoted, Warren Kinsella ran Dalton McGinty's three war rooms, the successful elections three in a row. He's furious about this. Uh, Flavio Volpe, who's now with the uh, Auto Parts uh, Manufacturers Association, but spent years working at Queen's Park. His father, former Liberal MP, uh, just 
furious at, at what the the message the sense to the the next generation of liberal leaders that you're not good enough and these guys who the, the next generation served as staffers you know um the older guys are just going to throw them to the wolves so a lot of angry liberals but shriners moved to say after saying no twice to say well I'll think about it let me talk to people in the party uh, if you're a green supporter, are you going to be excited at the idea that <laughs> he's going to potentially leave and go to another party? So he's caused problems in his own party. This is why, in a follow-up, I said I, I think this will end in tears for both parties. Uh, you know, it, the liberals just—they were in power for 15 years. They're successful when they're a centrist party that sits in the middle, the very middle of the road. They steal a bit from the NDP. They steal a bit from the conservatives. The last little while, they haven't been successful because they've decided their way to power is to just try and overtake the NDP and now the Greens by going very left-wing and, and leaving the middle. And Doug Ford has taken up that space right now. This doesn't help that. And they just had a report on why they did so bad in the last election that said they need to go back to being centrists. And this doesn't do that. This does the opposite. Yeah. Uh, last uh, little a bit with uh, Brian Lilly, columnist with the Toronto Sun. We got about uh, thirty seconds. If Schreiner says yes, and I think that's still a big if, is the Green Party dead in Ontario? Well, it is really only a Green Party of one right now, and, and that's part of the problem. And part of why I think it it won't work is if Schreiner were the savior that that they thought. He would have increased his uh, party standings by more than 15,000 votes between 2018 and 2022. Um, so the, the Green Party will be in big trouble if Schreiner says yes. Agreed. Brian, appreciate your time. Thanks for waking up with us on Good Morning Hamilton. Thank you. That is Brian Lilly, columnist with the Toronto Sun. Check him out online, torontosun.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have... A lot of work to do in this regard, but anti-black racism may get a bit of a body check here. That's some of the suggestions that is coming out of a new report from KPMG. And it shows that workplaces that have made some progress in addressing anti-black racism, and again, we, we have a long way to go here, but the potential of a recession could eliminate some of those gains, could, as I said, deliver a blow to some of those efforts. Rob Davis is the chair of KPMG's Board of Directors and Chief Inclusion, Diversity and Equity and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. How are you? Thanks I'm, for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This study found that nine in 10 respondents think that their employers made some progress on moving the needle and being more equitable and more inclusive for black employees in 2022, which is great. But there is the thought that. Uh, an impending recession may throw that off kilter. What did you find? Um, well, it's it's. I, I guess I'm a I'm a glass half full kind of guy, Rick. So I, I tend to focus on the positive. And the positive is that Black Canadians have seen lots of progress. Um, their employers are on board and trying to move the needle, trying to you know have much more representation of Black employees across the organization and at senior levels. But of course, you know, everybody, you know, seems to be talking about this sort of potential economic headwinds and and uh, recession that's uh, coming. So, you know, my, you know, sort of advice to Canadian uh, employers is, you know, obviously nobody wants to see 
job job cuts at all, right? It, you know, it's got to be last resort. But if an organization decides they need to let go of employees, you know, make sure they're not just cutting the most recent hires, right? Because if you think about it, there's been such a focus the last couple of years on diverse hiring that, you know, perhaps a lot of, you know, employees of the last couple of years sort of last in, you know, tend to be more diverse, right? So let's, you know, to, to the extent that there are job job cuts, let, let's, you know, focus on how it could impact certain groups, especially underrepresented groups. You know, for, you know, as an example, in our survey, we found that, you know, black men, you know, tended to see much more progress than black women, right? So, you know, to the extent that there are job cuts, you know, make sure that you're focused on who's getting cut, not just numbers, because I think, as, as, as we all know, a diverse organization becomes a more innovative organization. And, you know, in order for organizations to weather a potential economic downturn, you want to be innovative, you want to thrive, and that comes from having a diverse workforce with lots of different points of view, so you don't have an echo chamber, right? You're 100% right. And, you know, the difficulty that many businesses are going to have is if a recession does hit that many economists believe, they're going to have one of those choices, either cut the most recent hirees or trim their payroll by looking at those uh, higher earning employees who, as we've seen, you know, managers, directors uh, in many industries, we don't see that the same number of inclusivity uh, hirings that we're now seeing in uh, in the younger ranks. So those two balls are going to be tossed in the air. Which one falls down? It's going to be not only interesting to see, but it could be sobering to see what the results uh, come out of it. No, for sure. But 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 I do, you know, want to encourage employers to, you know, look at their overall workforce, right? And, you know, make sure that they're getting to the other side of a potential recession with their best employees. In in my mind, by definition, that will look very diverse. How would this impact Black-owned businesses? Is the same kind of impact? Um, I don't think so. I mean, our uh, survey focused on Black employees, um, I, don't, I don't believe so. You know, certainly over the last couple of years, especially, there has been a focus for a lot of organizations to really try to, you know, focus on, you know, black, indigenous owned um, companies. So I would think that that would continue. Um, I, I guess I worry less about that than black employees, frankly. Mm. we got about a minute. Part of this study really focused on an interesting perspective when it came to working from home and how it was an eye-opener for many other employees. Yeah, you know what, Rick? That, that's the part that probably surprised me the most, right? You know, the uh, remote work really appeared to push people to adopt a new, a new mindset, right? When people work from home, if you think about it, it's possible many of them let go of biases that they had when their coworkers were literally sitting next to them in the office, right? Because suddenly everyone had a new window into their colleagues' lives. You know, you think on Zoom calls, team, team calls, we really got to know each other better. And many of us ironically learned that we actually have much more in common than we thought. So, you know, I would suggest as we sort of get, you know, come back to the, to the, to the, to the office physically, let's really capitalize on the, on the, on the, on the progress that we made during the pandemic and really, you know, continue that same mindset, recognizing that we, we've got much more in common than we're uh, different. Absolutely. Rob, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. 
No problem, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Rob Davis, chair of KPMG's Board of Directors and Chief Inclusion, Diversity and Equity. One of the findings, 68% of respondents said working remotely removed racial barriers to career advancements. That is kind of cool. Let's see more of that in our workplace. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is February. That means Black History Month is now underway, and the city of Hamilton is doing its part by launching a pretty cool campaign for Black History Month that is honoring a number of black Hamiltonians, one of which is Reverend Robert Foster. And his great-grandson is joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony Foster is his name. Good morning, Anthony. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. How you doing? I'm, I'm really loving the show, man. I'm really loving the show today. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for joining us and for the kind words. This is all part of Black History Month. And what is going down if you're on James Street North in and around Leuna Station? There's a number of banners that are hanging from the, uh, the lampposts that have photos and names of some iconic and legendary Black Hamiltonians. Sixteen are being honored, including your great-grandfather, Tell us about your thoughts when you found out about this. Oh, wow. I, um, it made me even more prouder to be Hamiltonian. Um, just, uh, just having this crazy history of, in the city. Um, and, I'm, and I'm still here. I'm still, I'm still a descendant of uh, my, my great-grandfather. And he, you know, he, made, he made some history in the city, um, surrounding himself with just amazing people. Um, and, and even on Monday, we went, I was at City Hall and, it was just, it was a, it was just a beautiful celebration. Um, just beautiful. Like, I think we got, we got, I think my family was there and, uh, we were all emotional. It was, it was, it was just, uh, just, I'm so happy. When you so first, happy. when you first heard this was going to be done by the city, were you thinking, you know, why, why us? Or was it, uh, you know, a moment of, yeah, you know, it should be what the great Reverend did so many years ago. He, he should be honored. Exactly. You know, it, it, it's uh, it's coming to Black History Month, and this was just great. It was just a great way to, to celebrate. So, um, I definitely was like, "Hey, this 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 is amazing to have." Um, and and even even to tell my mom, my mother, like she, like I again, I'm the great grand grandchild, but my my mother has has a has a, a a bigger history with my grandfather. I I did have a short time with him, but um, the things that I do remember are just just amazing things so um yeah this is i'm just so happy (laughs) (laughs) what what does come to mind when you think of your great granddad uh strong strong man strong very strong man even even when i i just i remember even him giving me hugs and his just he was just so strong and and it was just it was just all love um he had a beautiful smile um and 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 even my grandmother my grandmother um she used to just tell me history with my my great-grandfather and and how influential he was in the in the community, um, and and surrounding himself with uh, people like Lincoln Alexander, who are, who's a great person in, in the city of Hamilton. Um, just there's just so much history, and and just to be part of that and and to be celebrated, it just feels amazing. It just it's <laughs> it's all, it's I'm I'm happy, Rick. I'm I'm very happy, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm I'm also and I also found out some more history in my family oh wow i'm also a descendant of uh julia washington barry no way we're a descendant of them as well as, as from her so um and that was just i found that information out on monday wow <laughs> so, 
It's all part of We Are Hamilton Black History Remembered, which launched at uh, City Hall yesterday. And among the other prominent black Hamiltonians that are being honored, uh, Ray Johnson, Normie Pinky Lewis, uh, Jackie Washington, the first black disc jockey on CHML back in 1948. So a very proud moment in this community. Tilly Johnson. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, What do you think this campaign is going to do in terms of heightening the awareness of how rich of a history we have in this community when it comes to black Hamiltonians? Well, for me, I, me, even just having me, my having my own business in the city, um, I, it was, it was actually crazy because I was getting a lot of love from my customers or even people, um, even where I was at work, they recognized me and just, just was, were very, very positive. Like the positive energy that I was getting from people was just phenomenal. And, and this city needs that kind of, of, of energy, especially with a little bit of our history, right? Our history is not all positive. So to, to come into 2023 with this kind of positivity is, is amazing. And, and this is going to be great for our, our future. And I'm, I'm a father. So, um, just even my son was super proud to see me in the newspaper. So. <laughs> It was, he's like, hey, is that daddy? <laughs> that is awesome. Hey, we got, we got about 10 seconds. Give your business a plug here. Hey, Hamilton Vape, check us out. Uh, we're in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we, we do a bunch of events in the city, and uh, we would love to have you come out. Check us out. Hamilton Vape, check us out. What's the website? We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram. We do not have a website, but just look up Hamilton Vape, and you'll find us. You got it. Anthony, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Have a good day. Anthony Foster, great-grandson of Reverend Robert Foster. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New report out from the Heart and Stroke Foundation shows a system failure and healthcare inequities that are leaving women's heart and brain health behind. Dr. Sharon Rambahar is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Rambahar is a cardiologist at McKenzie Health and an adjunct assistant professor in the Division of Cardiology in the Department of Medicine at the U of T. Dr. Rambahar, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad. I've been uh, leafing through this report and there are some pretty startling findings here. There sure are. There sure are. One of which is one woman will die every 16 minutes from heart and stroke. And that is a, a a wild number to think about. It is. You know, what's interesting is on the front lines when we're in the hospital, these are people that are somebody's mother, somebody's cousin, somebody's friend. And there's really a human face to it. Uh, and that's why the heart and stroke is so motivated to be uh, advocating about trying to find reasons for this and seek a way to fix it. Well, let's get into this uh, new report. It's called System Failure and how it is showing some pretty big inequities. So what did you find? So what's interesting is we know that there are gaps in awareness and research and diagnosis and care that are threatening women's heart and brain health. This is well established. It's been going on for many, many years. The Heart and Stroke has had a few different iterations of their reports over the years. We know that women face different risk factors for heart disease and stroke that are distinct. Some are the same, but some are distinct all through the spectrum of their lives. And then there's overlapping roles of society, the different roles that women may play as caregivers to others, the role of ethnicity and and other types of things. And so we're looking at how we can address that in a system lens. 
and try and help uh, address these inequities. And Cart and Stroke is committed to trying to move this forward. When I look at these gaps, I kind of uh, separate them from, you know, awareness and research. That's one thing. But diagnosis and care is, to me, another. Why are there there inequities in these two kind of sectors here? Well, it's so interesting. Uh, I think a lot of the research that was done was done many years ago, uh, and it was in a population about two-thirds of the research didn't include any women. And we've made some adjustments now in the last 10 years. Uh, the research funding agencies, Hamilton, has a tremendous amount of research coming out of McMaster. Some of the, the most important research actually looking to address gaps in women and, and actually ethnicity and global health have come out of the Population Health Research Institute at McMaster. Uh, and, and it's really interesting to see that as we do this, we can actually make changes in this. Um, one of the interesting and, and stark realities is that from a distance, women's hearts and men's hearts look the same, but how their heart disease develops and presents can be different. And, uh, and so I think that's a, an important thing for the public to know for in terms of their awareness, in terms of knowing their own risks and being their own advocates and knowing their symptoms. Do those stereotypical gender roles also play a part in this? That's a very good question. I think that's probably the key message here today, that when a woman or a man has a heart attack, certainly the most common symptom is chest discomfort. But more symptoms can be reported in women differently or described differently. Some may not even use the word pain. So we talk about that Hollywood heart attack. People clutch their heart and, and they feel chest discomfort. But in a large study of young women who have heart attacks, about 53% of them uh, reported that their symptoms were unrecognized or unreported by people who are taking care of them. And they may downplay their symptoms. So other things, and we usually say anything above the waist that doesn't feel right for you, that could be shortness of breath, that could be uh, feeling lightheaded or dizzy, it could be feeling a little bit faint or weak. And we know that that's really, really important to identify because the faster you can be aware that you are having a heart attack, you can seek attention. We know that when the research that we've all done about how to treat heart disease is actually looking at what we call male pattern heart disease, which some women do have, but women can also have different types of ways that they lay their cholesterol in their arteries. And, and then in those cases, we're still doing ongoing research to try to figure out how to treat that different pattern and how that uh, in, has implications in the heat of the moment. Men have, uh, you know, a really bad habit of not following through on, you know, pain or pressure points in their body. They just don't go to the doctor often enough. And I can admit that being a guy. Is, is it the same case for women? Are we not uh, relating this to some women as well? You know, what's interesting is I think seeking medical attention requires a little bit of vulnerability, but also accessibility. And you can imagine if you are working and you have childcare and you're the primary caregiver for children or older parents, as the case may be, uh, you have to put yourself and your health needs uh, first in order to go seek a doctor or be aware of this. And many women don't do that. We have, you know, in society, often women put themselves second, they're in a caregiver role, or they're, they're forced to be a caregiver role as the people in their families that have been designated to that. Women who live in poverty, women who have different social, cultural, language barriers may, less, may be less likely to access the healthcare system. And if you don't get to the healthcare system, 
That's the first rate limiting step, right? If you can't get there, then how are you going to seek care and start the cascade where you need to get treated and, and advocate for yourself? It's a great point. More information online, heartandstroke.ca. Dr. Rambahar, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Sharon Rambahar, a cardiologist at McKenzie Health, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and of course, a spokesperson for Heart and Stroke Foundation. Really interesting findings from the System Failure Report. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.